Thank you very much for tuning in to this episode of the Kick-Ass Women podcast, an interview podcast with female entrepreneurs and women in venture capital. This episode was recorded a few months back when I had the opportunity to interview Xinch, who I first met in Malaysia, Kuala Lumpur last year. Xinch is well known for building her own startup Watch Over Me for women's safety after she was the victim of a kidnapping attempt. Today, she's heading the marketing department at Storehub, a POS solution with 4,000 clients in 12 countries around the world. We talk about marketing and growth hacking, the most common mistakes entrepreneurs are making when it comes to marketing, the Malaysian startup ecosystem and politics, and Xinch shares how to get a foot in the door at VCs with a startup that mainly tackles an issue women are confronted with. Thank you so much again for being with me here today on the Kickers Women podcast. Thank you, thank you. Let's start off with a random question. And that is, I learned in an interview that I read with you, that you prefer animals over humans. Why is that? Well, I think first is where did you find this interview? Where did I say this in public? Man. Wow, I, I applaud you. I didn't realize this was an interview published like online somewhere. But uh, yeah, uh, I say that a lot. And a big reason, specifically, I, I, like, uh, I like dogs and I like cats. I think there's something beautiful about being an animal. It's like, it's just, life is just so straightforward. They are very straightforward, especially dogs. You know, they, they're so happy to see you all the time. They're always so happy. Um, life is simple and they have no hidden agenda. They just love you. I don't know, like being around my pets just makes me a happier person. <laughs> than being around humans sometimes. So you actually majored in psychology, which maybe plays along with that really well. But now you're actually in marketing. So how did you slip into that? Well, I I majored in psychology, not because I wanted to become a psychologist. Actually, I knew from the very beginning that I wouldn't be, be able to become a psychologist. I think a big part of psychology is the ability to really, really hold space very well for somebody else. And um, I'm not able to do that very well. So um, I kind of knew off the bat that psychology wasn't a good career path for me. But uh, psychology as a topic, as um, an entire subject, really interested me. I felt like I could just learn a lot about psychology in university and college because I actually had the opportunity to study either computer science or psychology. And ultimately I chose psychology because I figured I could learn to code um, much later on in life, but come on, the ability to actually go and run social experiments, uh, read journals and like uh, do a lot of case studies and write up a lot of um, Right up with those like long essays we'd have to do, like battling different opinions of what might be the best way forward for any case. Like you don't you don't really get to do that when you're an adult in the real world, right? So I felt like in an academic setting, psychology would be excellent. And from there, as a natural progression, uh, one of my favorite topics is actually social psychology. It was a very natural extension to move into marketing. I actually slipped into marketing by complete accident. I interned uh, at this company called Mind Valley. Eventually, from there, uh, I was introduced to world marketing that leveraged a lot of what I learned in social psychology. Um, in when it came to copywriting, when it came to thinking about the customer profile and the customer avatar, and I, it kind of just built upon that. 
And especially now with how marketing and growth hacking works with the experiments and how you run them, I, at least it seems like there's a lot of intersection with psychology and what you learned at uni as well. Most definitely. I think like um, people call psychology a pseudoscience. And I don't know, like maybe it is, maybe it's not. But the part about it that's scientific is that you learn to look at everything from well, very scientific point of view. You have a hypothesis, you you um, run an experiment, you have like a result, you understand whether something statistically significant or not. And all of that is a really, really crucial part of performance marketing, which is uh, specifically what I specialize in and what I focus on. So, and currently, maybe we'll talk about what you do right now. Um, at StoreHub, you're heading the marketing department? Yes, yeah, so I'm right now the head of marketing at StoreHub. And Sorhap is a POS system, right, that is currently used, if I did my homework right, um, by 3,000 businesses all over the world. And I can't imagine that that's a very competitive space. At least I see a lot of, of solutions popping up in that space. Well, yeah, um, actually, you did your homework quite right. We haven't updated the website yet. Like, we're actually used by about 4,000 stores right now. Wow, congrats. Um, in yeah, thank you. Uh, 4,000 stores in about 12 countries. Uh, we're particularly focused in Malaysia, the Philippines, and Thailand. But uh, we're, we're actually used in 12, more than 12 countries at the moment. You're right. It's a very competitive space. But um, I think our competition is very traditional versus modern. So StoreHub is a cloud-based POS system. Compared to a lot of the existing point-of-sale systems in the market, we are very much modern. We use a tablet uh, and everything's run on the cloud, not Microsoft Office on a desktop and everything start locally in a server. That being said, um, Southeast Asia is a really, really interesting market because while a lot of people are on very traditional point-of-sale systems, there are huge, like large percentage of retailers, businesses in in Malaysia even, uh, Thailand, the Philippines, that don't use any device or system to collect their sales. In fact, many of them are actually still run on pen and paper. So uh, this, while it's a very competitive space to an extent, the market penetration is not yet like 100%, not the way you have a refrigerator in almost every home. So I'd like to dig into your marketing brain as you've gained a lot of experience on the as a consultant and as a founder yourself are there any tools that you could recommend that other entrepreneurs could also use be it for marketing or in general for productivity oh that's a good question uh so for marketing tools we, I just, I, frankly, I just use whatever. But one of my most favorite finds um, sometime earlier this year, late last year, was an app called Station. I don't know if you've heard of it, actually. What does Station do? So you know how you've got everyone I know has a million tabs open in their Chrome or their Safari or whatever browser they use, right? You've got work email, you've got Google Calendar, you've probably got 10 research tabs, you've got Google Drive. So what Station does is that Station kind of allows you to sync all of your apps into one single window. So I can pull in Google Gmail, uh, Facebook Workplace, a Google Calendar, and all that's accessible like on the sidebar. And um, all my work stuff is in this one single window. And suddenly my browser doesn't have a bajillion tabs open for work anymore. So that actually has been super, super crazy helpful for me. You should go check it out. Like it actually, it was, I think, number one product on Product Hunt a while ago. Cool. I'll do that right after. Thanks so much for the recommendation. No problem.
And going further down the marketing path, now that you're heading the marketing department or from the customers you've worked with, what are some of the coolest growth hack or marketing ideas that you have ever tried? Or maybe is there any experiment you ran and you thought it was doomed to fail, but then it actually turned out to be a great success? That's a good question. I actually ask uh, people this question when I interview them. Ironically, though, I, I don't have an immediate answer at the top of my head right now. But um, one of our most, my most uh, promising ads and uh, well, actually two things. So we actually, when I was running my former startup, Watch Over Me, one of our initial Facebook ads was surprisingly and just by complete accident, really, really successful. Um, back then, uh, Facebook advertising was fairly new and uh, clicks were still really, really cheap. Someone, one of the newspapers in Malaysia ran a newspaper article on the app. And my ad was the simplest thing ever. I took a photo with my shitty smartphone back then. I added the words now available on the app store or something and then or number one safety app. And I kind of, and I just kind of let the ad run. Until today, I don't think I've ever found or made or written or created another ad that has beat that in terms of the click-through rate the um, cost per install, <laughs> the engagement, like nothing. It was the simplest ad ever. It took me five, 10 minutes to make and nothing has beat it. And it was complete by complete accident. In fact, like today, it just goes against every uh, ad best practice out there. I have no idea why, but it performed. <laughs> That's crazy. And actually, now that you're already speaking about it, when you say it goes through against everything that is kind of common knowledge among marketeers, what is actually the most common mistake that you see what startups do in marketing or growth hacking? I think at least the startups in Southeast Asia, a big part of the time is they don't think about their entire product from the process of a funnel. So understanding that uh, there are different aspects of the customer journey require different messages and different, all those different messages require different creatives or different ads. So that's actually one really, really big mistake. I don't think uh, startups in the region, at least, uh, like I don't think they tackle that very well. They don't place out their entire customer journey and think about where can you plug the holes in your marketing. So that's one. The second thing is I don't think enough uh, companies start with the customer in mind. So the very first thing I do when I walk um, into a room and I consult with any companies is I ask for their customer avatar. And they can always give me a brief like a look like, okay, my customer is like maybe a, she's a mom, she's got like kids, she shops, she's on Facebook all the time, uh, she lives in Kuala Lumpur. I'm like, all right, tell me about her motivations. Tell me about what makes her tick, what pisses her off. What, um, what does she love? What are her life goals? What are her biggest disappointments? And these are things that many, many companies, they don't bother looking into it. In fact, all it takes is a simple conversation with a handful of customers to build a customer profile that is almost like a person you can envision sitting next to you so that you can market to them better, write better messages for them. So those are two things I don't think uh, startups do very well, at least in this region. Yeah, I've, al I've also seen that a lot of startups don't really dare to go out to the customer and talk to them. And when you say they have to talk to a handful of customers, what kind of number would you recommend as a minimum number for an early stage startup to learn more about their customers, their motivations, their frustrations? Well, if you're a very early stage startup, 
then I'd say if you only have 10 customers, speak to all 10. Got a hundred customers, well, speak to as many of those hundred customers if you're very, very early stage, right? Like it's different at StoreHub. We've got like 4,000 businesses and getting a business to come and talk to you is probably a lot more challenging. So if I can get 10 here, I'm really, really happy. And when you say talk to the customer, do you actually talk to them or is it more of an email? Are you actually going to their store? Is it a phone call? How does it look like when you talk to StoreHub's customers? Well, as much as I can, we actually go to the ground. Um, I want to look at the shop, like think about why do you choose this location? Like really, really explore that. How, what makes a business successful? What, what are their biggest challenges? And a lot of the time, like um, just talking to them on the phone or on a call is not enough. Now, I understand there are like restrictions in terms of budget, in terms of timing. So if a customer is only able to do a conference call with, with us, then that's something I'm okay to do. But um, if a customer is more keen on like, it's keen on meeting, then I actually want to go to their store and have an entire conversation with them. We, I've got a list of maybe 20 to 25 questions and we kind of operate from there. Um, a big part of it is also sussing out the business, the customer's background. Where did they come from? What, why did they start this business? And these are really, really important bits of information. They're more, they're not like quantitative bits. They're more qualitative, but that will help give you a flesh out a strong story for uh, when you're marketing to pretty much any uh, customer segment. So the biggest thing is talking to the customer, learning about the customer and looking at each stage of the funnel. Yes. Is there any, I know that you run workshops yourself for Next Academy, apart from obviously checking out the workshops you work you run on there. Are there any other resources you would recommend entrepreneurs to check out? Any online classes, any books, podcasts? Um, so yeah, I do. I teach digital marketing at Next Academy and it's kind of like an online class. But um, I personally recommend if you're very, very new to marketing, um, you have to read uh, Influence by Robert Cialdini. So influence, uh, Robert Cialdini was a social psychologist and he wrote a book on the psychology of influence. And uh, I feel like that's the starting Bible for, well, any marketer, you should read that. And if you're a founder and you're working on products, then obviously the start Bible for most uh, early startup founders probably be hooked by Nir Eyal. So these are two books that I highly recommend as like a spring pad almost to something greater. I follow like a bunch of threads, articles on Medium. I'm part of the digital marketing group on LinkedIn because they always post latest uh, features or latest hacks on LinkedIn as well. So I don't have a very, I don't have like a god of something that I go for. I also sign up to pretty much every email list out there, uh, mainly because like if the email copy is good, I want to save it. And if it's bad, I also want to take a look at it and remind myself never to write that again. <laughs> Don't never write that way ever. <laughs> so I, I think you, I've got what, like 16,000 unread emails, I think, in one of my inboxes. Wow. Yes. And that's because I'm subscribed to pretty much every info marketer type uh, email list you can imagine out there. I do it for learning. And when I'm stuck or anything, that's where I get a lot of inspiration. Off the top of your head, would you be able to recommend any newsletter that has a really good copy that you actually read and does not <laughs> land in your unreads? Oh, that's a good point. I like um, reallygoodemails.com. Yeah, that's a good page. 
Yeah, that's a pretty, pretty good page. Um, so reallygoodemails.com is a favorite. I also subscribe to Growth Hacking Idea, even though I think it's like so-so. But uh, but sometimes there are good stuff there. And then, of course, a uh, uh, classic Neil, Neil, Neil Patel. Neil Patel is pretty good, too, for these things. Um, nothing too crazy, I think, at the moment. Thank you so much for the recommendations. No problem. I saw also that you used to run, or maybe you still do, please clarify, um, mm -hmm. workshops specifically targeted at women entrepreneurs. And so I was wondering why you did that and maybe why you think there are less uh, female entrepreneurs than male. Um, I didn't run workshops. I, I, I take no credit for organizing a lot of these workshops. Um, mostly I was invited to mentor or speak or um, kind of do like a sharing sessions or fireside chats with uh, women-centric workshops. Like uh, I think um, there's one organized by Google Women as well here in Malaysia. A big part of why I do that is I don't think that the startup world and the VC world is necessarily very female-friendly yet. When I say that, I mean um, women, there aren't, I need phrases better. <laughs> All VCs are male. Well, not all, but I say like 95% of VCs in Southeast Asia are male. And what that means is male VCs typically fund ideas that other male, male VCs or male startup founders love. A lot of female, a lot of ideas that target women's issues typically get overlooked because men simply don't understand it. See, I ran Watch Over Me, a, a personal safety startup for women um, a couple of years ago. And one of my biggest challenges was trying to get a man to understand why a woman might feel unsafe on a daily or even weekly basis. To me, it was such a natural thing. But for 95% of the VCs I spoke to, that was not a natural thing. And in many cases, Malaysians especially, uh, Southeast Asians, we're not storytellers. By nature, we are so shit at selling. And it was by a lot of trial and error that I found, found a marketing message that could appeal to male VCs as well. And it was super simple. All it started with was like, do you have a mom or a sister or a wife or a daughter that you care about? And almost always they'll say yes, because everybody has a has someone that they care about. I'm like, does she sometimes call you if she feels unsafe in a situation? And nine out of 10 times, they'll say yes. And that, that was my foot in the door for a lot of male VCs. Now, with a lot of female founders, especially if they're focusing on very female-centric products, like uh, I met a startup that was, uh, that was really focused on like a reproductive education. And she said that the, her founder was, the founder was really, really challenged when it came to getting um, a lot of VCs to understand what she was trying to do. So I went back, like, all right, so what is your foot in the door? And these little things for me are, uh, they're really, really important because the more female founders there are out there, the more problems faced by women, like the more of those problems get, uh, get solved. And hopefully there are more issues that get solved. They're not like, oh, where's your next pizza delivery coming from? I mean, how many food delivery startups are there already out there? And we need to be funding ideas. We need to be exploring ideas that are not just centered around that. And I, have, I find, and maybe you can call me sexist or whatever, I find that a majority of um, female founders are more inclined to try and tackle a big idea than many, many male founders out there.
And uh, because of that, I want to support that. And I want to support that and positively reinforce that. And I still do sharing sessions, but not, not like a shit ton of them anymore. Thank you so much for sharing that. No problem. That's a bit long-winded. <laughs> to add to the stats, I recently learned that in 2017, only 12% of VC money went to female founders. Yeah, I wish I was surprised by that, but no. Yeah, 100% agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> so you already shared that you um, had your own startup, Watch Over Me, and you started that a few years back and then sold it later. You shared on Facebook that you escaped from a kidnapping attempt. And afterward, you started the startup. If I may ask, it's, it's a horrific and crazy story. And I just cannot imagine how back then you worked up the courage and the energy to do that. To start the startup? Yeah. Uh, well... At that time, I had a lot of very negative energy and I needed a creative outlet. That's the, that's the only way I can, the only thing I can come up with that can justify that actually. I, I was in a very, it was a difficult time. I was very angry and uh, I needed uh, something constructive. And therefore, that's what, that's what happened. I, I feel like um, I, I don't like the term entrepreneur, but I've had an inclination to uh, start businesses to make money from a really young age and um, turning like a turning, like trying to find a solution for things specifically. So when that happened to me, uh, my natural inclination was to try and find a solution. And that's pretty much how Watch Over Me happened. Can you maybe share a few examples of how Watch Over Me has helped other people? Um, well, Watch Over Me is uh, no longer live uh, anymore. But during that time, we were used by, I think, some 300,000 women around the world. Um, I, was, I was really, really uh, proud of like, a, not, I wouldn't say proud, actually. They're pretty shit stories. But uh, I was very relieved and actually very grateful for this entire effort from my whole team. When we actually received the story, I think this was in 2014 or 2015, a woman in Chicago was walking home from work. And uh, she said that someone uh, attacked her. And we had this specific feature, which was like, if you shake your phone, you trigger an alarm. And uh, she used that feature. And eventually the guy got kind of freaked out and he ran away. So she did manage to escape safely. Now, this was a couple of years ago, but honestly, like running that startup, even one or two good stories of good outcomes um, made us all really, really happy and made everything kind of worth it. I can only admire what, what you have done. It's, I, I was no. on the website <laughs> recently and um, I just thought of it now when you said that many male VC cannot understand how women are fearful in certain situations and I read um, the comment of a female realtor and she said she always used uh, watch over me when she showed um, the, the ha house to a male client and I think that yeah, is that something that a male VC um, has a, may, unfortunately a hard time understanding why a, a female realtor, a grown woman would feel afraid or alarmed in this kind of situation which is our everyday job yeah 
No, I agree. And by the way, if you see any like app out there that says watch over me, it might be a phishing app because watch over me's app itself has been sunsetted. Like it, the app itself is no longer live. We have open source the technology. So I do know of a bunch of apps that have used us as the backbone for their own safety features, but the app itself has been sunsetted. So good to know. Thanks for the info. Yeah, that we, we I've had a couple of issues uh, with people using the brand name and the website name and all that. So, oh, that sounds annoying. Yes, that is. I'm trying to get them taken down, but well, it's a slow process. Mm. Um, yeah, let me know if you then need the uh, kickass women crowd to help you. Yeah. <laughs> for sure, for sure. <laughs> um. You also shared an article where you said that when you basically decided to, to sell the company to Carousel back then. Mm -hmm. And what I really liked is that you said you have this, this thing that you do every year where you take your family and friends on a vacation and you also use this time to reflect. And I was wondering whether you had any specific method to reflect and also set your goals. Oh, that's a good question. Um, I, I'm actually really lucky um, in the sense where my birthday is on the 30th of December. So it kind of coincides with this glorious time called the year-end vacation and also New Year's Eve. And typically that's when people reflect on the entire year. So I generally do the same. When I do a lot of my reflection, um, a couple of years ago, I started writing letters of gratitude to the people I felt impact my life most um, during the course of the year. Now, I don't always send those letters out. Uh, sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. But um, I just started writing those letters and that's how it started. And while writing those letters, I would reflect on key moments of the entire year. Um, what I wish I did better. Sometimes the letters of apology, sometimes it's letters of pure gratitude. And it's kind of free flowing. So, um, and that's how I process my catharsis for an entire year. And from there, I make some reflections and I think about what I want the next year to look like. Now, last year I turned 30. So I started thinking about, I started stretching my ability to look forward and vision forward a little bit more than I had in my 20s. I started thinking about what I wanted next 10 years of my life to look at look like. Now it's a work in progress. So I started plotting like five, 10 years. Like, okay, when I'm 40, when I'm 39 turning, turning 40, when I'm sitting here doing my annual reflections, what would I like to reflect on? And uh, what would I like to see in those reflections? And then I kind of set my goals for the next year based off of that. And a lot of now is like, I feel like this is a new time in my life. Uh, my early 30s are going to be rededicated to just learning. Learning how to, specifically not professionally though, like more learning how to be a better person. <laughs> like uh, one of the challenges with being in a leadership position is not really professional growth and is more of a personal growth. Like how can I stretch myself better to be able to care for more people, to be able to be more constructive, to be able to be a better leader, better communicator. And uh, this is all from like, okay, 10 years. If I want to do this in 10 years, this is what I got to do now. So that's kind of how I'm plotting that. Nothing specific. I wish I could give you something specific, but that's kind of how I reflect. Oh, it's really beautiful. And I like how it ties back to basically the reason why you started studying psychology. Yeah, actually. 
Now going away from you personally um, to look at the broader ecosystem that you're in, which is you're based in Malaysia. Yes, I am. One of the big institutions in the Malaysian startup ecosystem is MAGIC. It's the Malaysian Global Innovation and Creativity Center, which was actually launched by no one less than Barack Obama. Oh, yes. Yeah, pretty crazy. And um, yeah, it's basically there to support entrepreneurs in all kinds of ways, for example, and as an accelerator program. And the weird thing is that the, yeah, the government has been really supportive of entrepreneurs in the past. But now after the elections, which at least from what I understood, a lot of young people praised um, the new government. But now actually that new government said that it wants to dissolve magic. So can you maybe give a little bit of an insight what's happening in Malaysia and what's the atmosphere among founders? Um, well, I'm not a subject matter expert for this, right? So just putting it out there. But I, I think for many founders, it's business as usual. Honestly, um, and I love Magic. Uh, Magic was started, uh, like one of the, the founding CEO was a, is a good friend of mine. Mine and like magic has done some really, really amazing things, but entrepreneurship and even tech entrepreneurship doesn't start or even stop if magic were to be here or disappear. I, I think fundamentally that's, that's just a reality. People are still going to start their startups. Um, people are still going to uh, do whatever they were doing beforehand. And the community itself here is already really strong and generally quite supportive of each other, independent of a government uh, department regulating it. We've also got other uh, government agencies that are dedicated to empowering startups, uh, MDEC, for instance, the Malaysian Digital Economy Corporation. And that was started, um, I would say, in 1996, uh, like 20 years, more than 20 years ago. And their focus has always been on enabling tech adoption in companies and all of that. And uh, one of their mandates is also centered around uh, the tech startup ecosystem. So when you ask like, what's happening in Malaysia, what's the atmosphere among entrepreneurs, the reality is that it's business as usual. While it's a very exciting time to be Malaysian right now, but um, I think if you were a legit entrepreneur, if you're really serious about your entrepreneurial journey, you will make stuff happen regardless of whether there's an agency to help you or not. I'm very inclined to ask when you say it's an exciting time to be Malaysian right now, what is it that you yeah. mean? Well, we've, we just came out of like a... We just proved to ourselves that democracy is possible in Malaysia. Now, I, now I, it's too early to speak for the new government. Will they be effective? Will they not be effective? But for 60 years, Malaysia had seen the same ruling government in power, the same party in power for 60 years. And for a lot of people from my parents' generation, they, they could never imagine a world where the ruling government was not the Barisan National, which was the previous ruling uh, party. They could never imagine that. The system was always rigged against another party winning. There was just no way. So for most Malaysians, this has been a huge, like uh, this has been a huge splash, like cold water in their faces. They've woken up to a world where it is possible to have a two-party system. It is possible to have a democracy. And with that democracy comes obviously a lot of responsibility. It is possible for all those things to happen. And that's why it's a very exciting time to be Malaysian right now. Um, we are living in this world in this time where uh, that's a possibility. Maybe even a three-party system might be a possibility. We're living in a time where the media is the most unshackled it's ever been in the last 50 years. So <laughs> all in all, it's pretty exciting to be Malaysian right now. That is very exciting. Thank you so much for giving us these insights.
No, no, thank you so much for your time. I have one last question. If people sure. want to get in touch with you, where would that be? What is the channel that you can be found on? I am pretty active on Instagram. Uh, my handle is Sinchness, uh, X-I-N-C-H-N-E-S-S. So you can go, you can go look me up there. Perfect. We'll do that. So thank you. Thank you so much once again, Sinch, for being with me and um, giving me insights in your experience and uh, your expertise. It was a pleasure to, to have you and to talk to you. Thank you for having me. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Kick-Ass Women podcast. If you enjoyed it as much as I did talking to Xinch, leave a review on iTunes. It helps other Kick-Ass women and men just like yourself to find the podcast.